0: And uh, so thank you again for being in God's house uh, today. Well, we're continuing in the Gospel of John. We've been in the Gospel of John for several months now, going verse by verse through the chapters. And if you have your Bibles, we're in John chapter 5, starting John chapter 5 today. And uh, if uh, you don't have your Bible, we will have the scriptures on the screen for you. Um, But again, we thank you for being uh, here in the Lord's house today. Um, And uh, I'm excited about the message today. And, uh, and just about what it can do to help us. You know what's crazy, church? You know what's crazy? That even though uh, we can get so unbelievably tired in life, I know I can at least, so unbelievably tired in our lives, even in the midst of our fatigue, even in the midst of sometimes our stress um, and craziness of work and kids having fun and family stuff and just life in general. We get so exhausted. Anybody else get exhausted? Is it just me? Is it just me? Thank you. Let's be. I remember I talked about last week about being responsive. So I appreciate you guys responding. That means a lot to me because I need that. I know I'm not the only one that gets exhausted in life. But even with all of that exhaustion that we face, you know what happens so often? We don't get rest. We don't find rest. We don't rest. Do you ever have trouble, maybe not just with your your physical body of getting rest, but in your mind, in your soul. Do you ever have trouble getting your soul at rest? You can nod your head. You don't have to raise your hand if you're a beard. Hey, I'll raise my hand and say, Yes, I do. Man, there are times in my life. I, there, there, there are nights when I, Marissa's next to me, snoring, sawing logs. And I wish I was doing the same thing, but I just can't stop thinking about a certain thing or stress about this. I remember there was one time, thank God for my wife. who was such a blessing to me and an encouragement and a challenge to me. I remember once I was so stressed. This was about a year ago. Before we were um, in the building, before we had really started officially. And I remember she's like, what's wrong? What's wrong? I'm like, I just, I said, I'm so worried that once we start the church and people start coming, new people, visitors, and we start to grow, that I'm I'm gonna forget some of their names. And she said, Donald, you're stressing out about people that don't even come to our church yet. (laughs) And I'm like, you know, I think you're right, actually. It's sometimes challenging to get our souls at rest. Our society, this generation in particular, but our society, no matter what the age is, is often addicted to noise. We're addicted to activity, to motion, to just keeping going. We always have to be doing something. And I will tell you church, personally, I get sucked into that so quickly. Isn't it amazing you can be in the ministry, serving the Lord with your life, committed to the cause of Christ, and still sometimes get so sucked into activity that you forget to rest your soul, which is what God commands us to do. I get sucked into that too. Even when I I rest, (laughs) I always, I'm looking for something to do. I'm supposed to be relaxing. You know, it's almost like taking a, a vacation to Disney World. Is it really a vacation? If you're walking 10 miles a day, you know what I mean? I love it, by the way. But you almost need a vacation from your vacation when you get back. But oftentimes, even when we, even when we say, well, I'm, gonna, I'm taking a day for myself, what are we doing? We're running around like crazy. And by the end of the day, we're more tired than on a regular work day. We suffer from something called urgency addiction. Urgency addiction. What is that? What is urgency addiction? It is a self-destructive behavior that temporarily fills the void created by unmet needs. Now, let that process for a minute. Urgency, why are we always on the move? Why do we always have to be doing something? I gotta do this for work and I gotta do this for this, I gotta make sure this. Is it. And we're always running around, having to fill that void. Why? Because we suffer from urgency addiction, a self-destructive behavior that temporarily fills the void created by unmet need. Why are we often so restless and anxious? Why do we have this inability to stop? And just pause and rest, why? because it 's usually a, a cover, that restlessness, that inability to stop that urgency in our lives it 's usually a cover to hide the fact that we are dealing with a a vacuum, a, a something missing, some set of unmet needs for me, church, I can always point back to. That. there was a time in early in my ministry, not here we 've only been here about three years, but when I was a youth pastor in Michigan at a uh, independent Baptist church that was Four services a week, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Saturday this, this, Friday night this, and I felt, I mean, it was nonstop movement, and I said, well, this is just what I have to do, this is the life that I lead, This, is, and I'll tell you, I was so anxious and struggled so much in my mind, it was so insecure, and I had all these unmet needs, and I, if I just stay busy, I will feel better about myself. If I just keep doing things for the Lord, then, then I'll feel better about the kind of Christian that I'm, that I'm in the other years that I'm feeling, but I can succeed. You see what I mean? We have unmet needs, and we, we have to keep going. We get so used to the adrenaline rush that we, we create urgency everywhere we go. My sister's like that. I wish she was here to hear me roast her right now. I really do. If you have a younger sibling, you're like, you just like picking on them. My sister can take a calm situation and immediately make it urgent, <laughs> immediately make it stressful. It's just, that's just who she is. She can take something so calm and be like, oh, what about this, what there?" And then, then I'm stressed. I'm like, Katie, just shut up for a minute. You're killing me here. Listen, that kind of, and I'm joking about that. If she ever hears this message, please, don't be mad at me, Katie. Come visit me. Um, that kind of life, though, that urgency addiction, it's, it's bad for, our, obviously, for our health. We know that physically. It's bad for, us, but it's bad for our mind, and it's bad Spiritually, for our soul, it's unhealthy. And, and I mentioned earlier we're going to be talking about rest today. The kind of rest that we're going to examine today is, is rest that only Jesus can give you. A vacation to Florida won't give you this kind of rest That we're going to talk about uh, uh, You know, uh, an extra $1,000 in your paycheck each week Is not going to give you the rest That we're going to talk about uh, this, this morning uh, You know, uh, selling something And, and having a, a good savings account Is not going to do that All these things Listen, only Jesus can give you this type of rest Only Jesus can truly put your heart and soul Deeply at rest But our busyness Our urgency, church our busyness helps us not face the emptiness and unrest that is within us. So today in the passage, we see, we see a conflict rising in this passage in John chapter 5. We're going to read it in just a moment, but let me just kind of unpack a little bit before we get to this point. In this passage, we see that Jesus almost on purpose instigates a conflict. It's interesting. It's very interesting what we see here. He almost instigates a conflict. There's two kinds of people that we're going to see in the passage today in John chapter 5 that that are offered rest by Jesus, and yet they reject it. The first group of people is people that are self-satisfied. People that are self-satisfied. Now, these people are not whole. They are not well, they are not, they don't have it all together they, they, they have a lack of rest, but they have learned to deal with this restlessness They have, they have learned to cope with this inability to stop it, and And with this hopelessness, they've kind of learned to live with it They really don't want the impact of healing Or the impact of, of wholeness in their life Because they're helpless and they're kind of happy to be helpless These self-satisfied people On the other side, the, the complete opposite side We see self, the self-righteous in the passage. These are the people that are high performing, Uh, they're rule keeping, they're very religious, very staunch, uh, disciplined people, high achievers. They have great pride and, and they boast in their achievements and their religiosity and they criticize others that don't measure up to them. They judge the rest of the world for their failures. We see the self satisfied in this passage and we see the self righteous. And both of these groups of people are offered rest from Jesus And by record of the story that we're going to read in the passage, neither one walks away with it. Neither one walks away with the rest that Jesus offers. And the truth is, church, some of you today, some of you sitting here today and and some of the people up here on the platform today have been offered rest by Jesus and have yet to accept it. And there may be people here that you may look on the outside like you've got it all together, but you are falling apart at the seams. You are under the surface. You are falling apart. You are anxious. You have unmet needs. And you are like, if I can just keep on moving forward. Fake it until you make it. And we, we live these lies. Listen, Christ offers rest. Let's look at chapter 5. Let's get into it this morning. We find Jesus in chapter 5. Last week we talked about... The the royal official that came to Jesus my son, he's sick, he's dying, he's at the point of death. And Jesus says, go home, your son's healed. And we saw the beauty of that faith and that pastor and all those things. Now, we we come to this week, and Jesus is now not in Capernaum, but he's in Jerusalem. uh, And and this is about 90 miles from where he was last week. And it says uh, in the first um, verse here in uh, chapter 5, and we'll read it in a minute. I won't show the scriptures yet because it's just one part. He's at the feast. He's at one of these feasts. There's many feasts back then, and 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 there's a lot of words we're going to talk about today that you may not have heard uh, much. They're, they're older biblical theological kind of uh, words from from, uh, from Israel and things like that. Uh, but the feast, the Sabbath, these things. The bottom line with all these things with with Israel and the in the in the New Testament and, and the feast that they have and the, the the sheep gate and all these different things that they have is kind of confusing. And that's a whole another like lesson. But the bottom line is this. Why did they have feasts that they went in worship? Why did the Israelite people, those who were in Judaism, have the Sabbath? The bottom line is this. Their God, God, is really generous. He's very, he's very lavish in his love. He's a protecting shepherd. And what he says, God says to his people, including us. But what he's saying to the Israelites, his people, Be my sheep, and I will bring you to still waters and green pastures. God gave his people gifts of rest, the people of Israel. We see that all through the Bible as we study it. He gives his people rest, gifts of rest. Now, his gift that he gave them of rest is technically kind of like a, uh, a command, a law, but it's a law of love. Not for salvation, like if you do this, 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 and this, then you'll be saved. That's not what we're saying here. Uh, all of God's commands for his people in the scriptures, but for us today, all of his commands are gifts. We have to see it that way. If we look at the Bible as, well, it's just going to tell me what I have to do with my life, then that's, not, that's an unhealthy spiritual way to look at the Bible. But if we look at it like, hey, God knows best for me, so what God commands for me is out of love. He knows what's best for me, so I'm going to obey him. The bottom line is God loves us, so that's why he gives us commands, and that's why he commands us to rest. If I command my kids on Christmas morning to open their gifts, you think they're upset that I'm telling them what to do? No! You see how that works? Sometimes the things that I can be like, okay, okay, sit down, uh, uh, grab one present, and uh, open that present. And they're like, well, you can't tell me what to do, Dad. I doubt that's going to happen. They're going to be like, yes, sir. I'll gladly obey you. And that's the kind of commands that God gives us. There is huge blessing and huge outcome and, and, and just blessing and outcome with the way life works when you truly understand the heart of God. When you understand the heart of God, these things make better sense. So he gave his people and commanded, you see it in the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? He commanded a day of rest called the Sabbath. What was it called? Sabbath. Yeah, it's good. We're his mouth. I love it. So he said, you can work six days. And think about it. Back then, the work they had to do in the gardens and the fields, lots of work to be done. He says, on that seventh day, though, I want you to put all that aside. I will take care of your, your flocks. I will take care of your field. I will take care of it. I want you to rest. And that was God's gift to us. You need to rest. Work your six days. Fine. You got to. I understand it. But rest on that seventh day. And the truth is for us church, we don't practice that as often as we should. We don't rest. Some of us, we would love to work seven days a week because we got to make that money. Why did God command a day of rest to his people and why does he say it to us as well? Because he wants to keep our work and keep our money and keep their work and keep their money from being becoming God. To them. So he said, I don't want your money and job to become a god to you. So you need to take a day of rest. You need to take a day and relax and, and, and just bask in my goodness to you. So that's what these feasts were. These feasts that they, the Israelites would travel to and they would go, they, they'd gather together, they'd enjoy company, they'd eat good food, they'd worship and they'd show gratefulness to God, uh, to, to God and to his goodness. So we're going to read all 15 verses uh, right now, and then we'll kind of pick them apart piece by piece, and we'll be through this morning. The story is pretty unique. I'll be honest. As I studied this this past week, going through this, it it almost gave me a different perspective from the one I grew up with. You know, sometimes the Sunday school, flannel graphs, you know, everything's, you know, sunshine and roses and rainbows. And sometimes there's a little bit more in the context of the scriptures that we miss, especially as kids. Um, and, And there's a great miracle that we see here, but there's some other stuff as well we're going to see. So let's read the scriptures. And then we'll uh, jump right into it this morning. Verse 1, I think it's up here. Yes, John 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatever whatsoever disease he had. Verse 5. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him. This is Jesus speaking to this lame man. Wilt thou be made whole? Verse 7. The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man... When the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Verse number 8. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day, page after this, on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is a Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, what man is that which said unto thee, take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterwards, Jesus findeth him in the temple, the man who was cured, and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. So we're going to pick this apart real quick this morning and uh, go through some of these scriptures, kind of explain a little bit and let you know what's going on. So here we are in Jerusalem at the feast. Lots of people there. Usually like the, 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 the amount of people doubled or tripled in these times when people would just show up for these feasts and things like that. Now, this part of town where the pool of Bethesda is, at the, they say it right there in verse number uh, um, 2, the sheep mar- by the sheep market. This was the rough section of town. This was the part of the neighborhood that you really didn't visit. You know, you know, when you go to like, you know, the Bahamas or Jamaica or Puerto Rico, they're like, hey, yeah, stay at the resort, but don't go the other side of town. That's kind of how this was. This was where the poor people lived. This is where the animals were kept for sacrifices and things like that. This is where the homeless people lived uh, here by this sheep market. This is the kind of neighborhood that you don't want to visit. It smells, it's dirty. It's kind of like the back alley. Of Jerusalem, and this pool of the Bethesda it says it had five porches. And I want to show you just kind of a quick model of it that you can see. And you see, like it's it's kind of built really unique. It's just a model, but you got you know one two you know you got the one two three four, and then the middle is the fifth porch. And this one was deeper, one was more shallow. And uh, here they are. That's that's what this was, the pool of Bethesda. This used to be uh, used to wash the animals for sacrifice. Uh, during during feast time, this place was even more crowded, and it says that at this pool, at this pool of Bethesda, all of the blind and halt and withered and everything, this is where they gathered because according to uh, uh, you know pe- some. Superstition, whatever it may be. The scriptures say that that it was just known that an angel would come and, and stir the waters. And then when the waters stirred, the first person that got in the water was healed of their impotence, whether it, whatever it may be. They were helpless. The Bible uses the word impotent, which means totally helpless, powerless, poor, beyond the ability to help themselves. Now, here's where it gets kind of funny. There's some stuff in this passage that the truth is, church, Bible scholars are still unsure. You know, the scriptures, all, they, all John says is, you know, it's, it was said that an angel went down the pool. We don't know if that's a superstition of the day or it was really the grace of God. We just don't know. We don't know what that is, and that's okay. There's, we, those are things we can find out when we get to heaven one day. But all we know is that this is what people believed. It was a superstition or it was God's grace, whatever it was. But ultimately, for the message today, that really doesn't matter what, what, it, really, what it really was. The bottom line is that these people, all the people that gathered around to try to find healing, what were they trusting? And they were trusting in the pool to save them. They were trusting in the pool to heal them and to give them uh, uh, that grace and to give them what they thought they needed. And and truthfully, that pool, for most of the people there, was very insufficient because only one person could get in at a time. So so we're there, and then we we get to verse 5 and we find this guy who had been at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. It's a long time. 38 years unable to walk with, with just being lame and, and, and just couldn't. He had an infirmity 38 in years. Now think about this. Jesus, not long before this, was in Capernaum and stayed up all night long and healed every single person. that could. Jesus had healed thousands already. Jesus could have gone into the pool of Bethesda and just whoo, and healed every single person. But there's a, there's a reason he doesn't. There, there's, there's, there's a reason why things are a little bit different than, than normal in this, in this passage. Jesus goes into the pool area, it says in verse number 6. Jesus goes in. Now, by the way, that should say something to us. That the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, come to earth, goes to the tough part of town. Has enough compassion in his heart to say, I'm not better than these people. Uh, It doesn't matter. I'm going to go where the people are hurting, where the people are broken, and I'm going to see what I can do to help. That should speak to our hearts that we may not think that when we pull up to the intersection, there's someone standing there with a sign that we think, well, if they just got a job or if they just did this, God help us if that's our heart. God help us. Jesus had compassion on those who, who were struggling, whether it was their own making or, or, or just the, the way their life turned out. Jesus was someone who had compassion, but it doesn't show him healing everyone here. And we can, we can wonder why, and we'll see. But he finds just one man, 38 years lame. What a tragedy that is. Now, remember, not everything uh, bad that happens to us is because of sin. So there's, there's scriptures in the Old Testament that talk about, like, oh, the, the family curse and things like that. But the truth is, everything bad in life that that, that can be, comes into our life is not because we're doing wrong. I used to live like that. If my car broke down, I'm like, what did I do? I must have displeased God in some way. It's because I didn't read my Bible today. My car broke down. That is a very unhealthy way to view God. We have a God of grace. Now, at the same time, we have to remember that, sure, not everything bad that happens in our lives is because of sin, but we need to be honest that there are some things That you can do in your life that are sinful, that are wrong, that are against God. And the outcomes of those decisions are destructive. (laughs) We have to remember that. So you can create your own wreckage in life. So we don't know exactly this man's story. We don't know if he did something. It kind of, as the story goes on, seems that maybe at one point in his life that he could walk and then he made some bad choices. We don't really know. But you just need to know that for this part of the story. So what happens to your legs if you don't use them for 38 years? They still look strong and healthy. No, they shrivel up. they're up. They're this guy probably. If you can just imagine it in your mind, what this man must have looked like after 38 years sitting by the pool of Bethesda, trying to find healing from the pool. Legs are probably shriveled up. He probably dragged himself and his hands. Are probably calloused. He's probably dirty. He probably smells. He's probably emaciated. He's homeless, destitute, impover impoverished, living living only off what people decide to give him. He's in a bad situation. He hasn't bathed in who knows how long. He can't get into the pool. Imagine the smell that's in that place. If this was the place where the animals were washed, and there are animals all around, you know, what, what do animals do? They don't go to the, use the restroom. <laughs> They're going to go right there. And these people, unfortunately, are all around that and laying and all that stuff. I mean, it's just a, a dirty, stinking place. Bug infested, a gross place to be. His hair was probably matted. He's probably caked with... Still just in a bad situation. And ironically, Bethesda, the pool Bethesda means house of mercy. And Jesus wants to give this man rest. Yes, from his physical calamity, yes, from his weakness. Yes, he wants to heal him. But but ultimately, like all of us. God doesn't just want to answer your little prayer that you have for an extra paycheck or for some money for bills. God wants to give us soul rest. He wants to give uh, forgiveness of sin and new life with God and acceptance from our Heavenly Father. He, He wants to be that shepherd king in your life and in my life who will guide and direct my life forever into eternity. Listen, there's no better rest than that. There's nothing better than that. That's what Jesus ultimately wants to do for this guy. Not just heal his legs and say, hey, good." he wants to to be his savior. And it starts with physical healing. Yes, rest from the incapacity to do anything. Rest from the weakness. Rest from the oppression of his laying there for 38 years. Yes, he wanted to help him with that. And then he asked this question in verse number six. I think we can find it right here. Verse number six. Jesus sees him. He knows his story, it says in the scriptures. He knew he'd been there a long time. And he goes to him and he says, "Wilt thou... Be made whole. Or another way you could say it is. Do you you want to be well? Do you want to be well? Sometimes church. We can have something. Called learned helplessness. Learned helplessness. This is. A behavior that. That shows. That an individual. You or me or somebody. Can be so Immersed in a negative situation and to begin to see that that situation is inescapable. There is no way out from it. I, even if there is a way to escape, we have this learned helplessness. We're like, there's just no hope for me. It just, you know, if, they, if this person, if me or you, if, if we had the courage to make some choices, we could rise out of that situation, but we don't want to believe that. So we have this learned helplessness. This is where I'm at. Our hearts can be so calloused uh, to hopelessness That we believe there's no chance for change. There's no chance for hope or deliverance. And and, and these people that practice learned helplessness, they they come to accept the negative circumstances as final. This is just the way it is. And this man was there. This guy with the shriveled up legs, sitting by the pool for 38 years, is there. And Jesus says, Hey, do you want to be well? And, and, and this is where we find uh, the, the yeah, but crowd. The yeah, but. Response. Well, yeah, but. Yeah, but, you know, and what does he say? Yeah, but I, I can't get to the poor. And this is the yeah, but crowd. And, and church, think about this. How many times has God posed a question to you and you posed an excuse to him? Woo! No one likes to hear that. Hey, Donald, do you want... This is for your life. Fill in the blank. Do you want this? And it's like, well, yeah, God, but we are full of yeah, but. That's just the way we can be. And this is the guy. Yeah, I can't get into the pool, though. Yeah, but I can't get in the pool. There are ties in my life, church, when God sits down, do you really want to be whole? Do you really want to have freedom in your life? Do you, do you really want to have, do you really want to be a good husband? Do you really want to be a, a, a good father? And, and do you really want to reach the next generation with Christ and with me? Do you really want to? And God is asking these questions to me. And I'm like, well, yeah, God, but... You know, I can't or I don't know. And, and I begin to tell God how circumstantially his plan, his idea is impossible for me. Well, it might have worked for that guy, but, but God, that just won't work for me. In church, we do that. We live that life. We live that yeah, but life. When we think that way, we live like that. When we think there's no hope, we live like that. This is just the way I am. This is just the way it is. I'm kind of just stuck here. When the God, church, listen to this, when the God of the universe is your shepherd and your savior, you are never stuck. Amen, church? Amen, church? Yes, you are never stuck. You are never stuck in misery. You are never stuck in poverty. You are never stuck in weakness. You are never stuck in a lack of provision. But he may come to you and say, do you want to be well? So I challenge you this morning, don't don't learn helplessness. Catch that make some adjustments and the man answers him in verse 7 we see in verse 7 he says uh, the impotent man after Jesus asked him Wilt thou be made whole do you want to be well he says sir I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool but while I'm coming another steppeth down before me he's like oh someone always beats me there I have no one to bring me over there and he's got these excuses yeah but and, and for him he's, he's saying well the pool is my salvation the pool is my salvation I don't need you to heal me I need you to put me in the pool. And the man doesn't need the pool. He needs Jesus. That's what he needs. You've got to take this truth, church. You've got to take this, this, this truth and, and kind of push it into your own life right now. We're not just telling a story. here. We're not just telling old stories that we can remember. No, we've got to take these truths and, and push it into our own lives. What is it that you know that God wants you to do or wants you to be, but you don't think you can do or be that, and your big yeah but is right there. Well, I would do that, Lord. I would serve you. I would engage more. I would. I would give more. But God, I need you to pick me up and put me in the pool. I need you to do this for me. We have these excuses. What is it that God wants you to do? Wants you to be, and you just have your but already ready. Yeah, but I can't. I can't. So, what does Jesus? How does He respond to this guy? It's kind of interesting how He responds to, to this man here, because. Jesus said, do you want to do well? And he said, well, I can't, yeah, but I I can't get in the pool. And Jesus doesn't say, well, let me help you or this and that. He literally just says in verse number 8, I think it's up here, Jesus saith unto him, rise, take thy bed, and walk. Stand up, take your bed, and go home. Now, the little Sunday school lesson that we all grew up with, with the little phonograph, like I mentioned, it kind of makes it so sweet, and oh, wow, that's so sweet. But it's kind of an ugly scene here. It's kind of like, it's not like the, the man last week that had his son that was sick. This is a lot different. This is Jesus going up with this guy and saying, hey, do you want to be well? Knowing the guy's for And then the guy not saying, yes, you're my Savior. I believe in the Messiah. But him saying, well, no, I can't get in the pool. And he says, well, you know, just get up and, go, and take your bed and go. And, and we see the guy just does that. He doesn't say anything to him. Pick up the bed is a very important part Of the story here, and that's kind of what makes it interesting. This is stuff that we can miss if we just read through really quick and just say, "Oh, he healed the guy." That's right. When Jesus says, "Stand up, take thy bed, and go home," that "pick up your bed" part is extremely important. We can't miss about it. Think about this: Does the guy really need that bed? He's been laying on that bed for thirty-eight years. It's probably nasty. It's probably gross. It's probably infested, probably where COVID came from. It's nasty, man. It's gross. You don't need that. It's probably as bad as a kid's car seat. You know what I mean? It's just gross. He doesn't need that. Why is it that Jesus is saying, Pick up your bed and go home? See, with wholeness, with healing, with new with wholeness comes a whole new life of opportunity and response. We would love it if we could just get all the answers to our prayers and continue to do what we want to do. We want God to show up in our life, but still let me kind of do what I want to do. With wholeness, with new life in Christ comes a whole new life of opportunity and response, which is why some people don't want wholeness. Some people don't want, I've talked to so many people who say, they're like, I don't know what to do with my life. And I'm, I'm like, hey, you need to give your heart to Christ. And I try to help them and, and gently prod. And, and, and I get to the point where I'm like they don't really want help. If you ever talking to someone like that, they really they, they, they say they want help, they say they want change, but then when you say, like, hey, okay, these are things you should and shouldn't do. You know, they, these things are obviously hurting. They're like, oh, they really don't want that help. Some people would rather perpetually be helpless, because helplessness. In their lives, sometimes it's become kind of useful. It's kind of a way of life. I have been there, church. I have been that guy that always wants to play the victim. Everybody's always against me. You know why I lived that life for so long? Because it's easy. It's easy to put it on everybody else. Yeah, but no one put me in the pool. I, everybody keeps going faster than I am. We have all these excuses. It becomes an easy way to live. This man, think about it, been laying there, probably watching people all around him working hard at their jobs, and then he suddenly goes like, "Oh, I'm gonna have to get a job now. <laughs> I can't just, you know, it, it, when you have new life, when change happens, there's some new responsibilities. If he's gonna stand up and walk, he's gonna have to get a job. You have to change some things." Verse nine. What happens? We see immediately the man was made whole. Immediately his legs come back. Think about how amazing that must have looked. His legs were definitely more than shriveled up and old. And, just, and suddenly Jesus just stand up. And he stands up and, the, and the, the muscles come back. And he's got these strong legs and he's standing on his feet. Just an amazing, miraculous story that we see here. Amazing. But you know what John, the author, does here? He leaves out any kind of celebration. There's other stories where like we see the guy walking and leaping and praising God. We don't see any of that here. We see the guy get up. We have no record of him thanking Jesus. We don't know if he did or didn't. And he just leaves. That's because that celebration of that stuff is not really important to the point that John, the author here, is making in this story. The man's life is made whole. He's totally changed. He's got his legs back. And the end of the verse, though, is what is really important when he says, at the end of verse number 9, after he got up and walked, took his bed, on the same day was the Sabbath. The Sabbath is what? God's gift to us. God's day of rest. You can work all week, but you better rest on that Sabbath. And you know what the Pharisees, the religious leaders of this time had done? These were the religious guys that, that did everything right. Everybody looked up to them, and they were the ones. They had taken God's Beautiful gift of the Sabbath. Beautiful gift of rest. And they had twisted it. And they had made it into this miserable law. See, the Bible says in in verse number 10 that that they come to him and say, it's not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. It was illegal to carry your bed on the Sabbath day. These Pharisees had made all these rules up. To try to protect everybody from, from doing any kind of work on the Sabbath. So you can't carry a bed on the Sabbath. It was illegal. So think about it. Jesus. Tech, Jesus knew all this stuff. He knew all that, what was going on. He knows everything. So Jesus pretty much told this guy, stand up and uh, uh, break the law. <laughs> really. And walk through town publicly breaking the law, the religious law. In verse 10, we see that they questioned him and say, you can't carry your bed. They had made up all these annoying laws about the Sabbath and about everything, but especially with the Sabbath. I'm talking so many laws. About there were some, instead of the Sabbath being what God wanted it to be, a day of rest, worship, cherishing your family, eating good food, taking the day off, just worshiping the Lord, it had be, become defined as this kind of microscopic, man-made construct of Sabbath laws where there were so many things to keep up with. There was some crazy stuff. There was a law about the Sabbath that you could not carry your scarf. But if you wanted to wear your scarf, you could. So you could, like, wear a scarf, but if you took it off, you couldn't carry it. You say, that's stupid. Yeah, it is. So the guy probably could have worn his bed home. and <laughs> been fine, but he couldn't carry it. There, there was one, back then they had false teeth. If your tooth fell out on the Sabbath, you could not put it back in because it was considered work. That, that's just the way it is. The Sabbath law said that you can't walk a 1,000 feet out of your house. You know, that, that if you take more than a 1,000 steps away from your house, then you are working too much. So you couldn't go 1,000 feet more. But they said, well, what if you need to get water and it's 2,000 feet away? This is what they said. This is their law. This is how crazy they were. They said, well, take a rope that's a thousand feet long and tie it to your house and then stretch it out a thousand steps and then what you've done is you've added an addition to your house. So now you start there and now you have a thousand more steps. That is the crazy man-made stupidity that they had attached to God's beautiful gift of the Sabbath. And this is what happens with religious people so many times. You're like, aren't you a pastor? Yeah, but I don't want to be a guy to just consumed with religion. You know what religious people do sometimes, and these zealots do? They look at a miraculous occurrence. Here's a guy that was lame for 38 years. His legs are made new in a moment by the Messiah. This is awesome. This is exciting. And what do they see? Hey, hey, you're carrying your bed. That's illegal, man. You can't do that. It's a Sabbath, don't you know? They all they saw was the problem. All they saw was the broke. Did they see grace and mercy and love? Nope. They see a man carrying a bed. All these man-made rules, and they're trying to keep them, and they're keeping them, and they're judging and oppressing anyone who doesn't keep them as well as they do. And I'm telling you, sure, it happened back then in this passage, and it happens today in churches all across the world where we think we got it all together and everybody else doesn't. That is not the church that Jesus died for. No, it's not. The Sabbath had been perverted. A day of rest turned into the most stressful day of the week. I'll tell you, I've been there before. There was a time when I was in ministry years back that Sundays were brutal. They were tough. I was like, I'm going to be dead. And the day that I was supposed to like, enjoy worshiping the Lord and serving people, I dreaded. And, and, and why is that? Because we, we twisted it. You know, think about these people back then, like, how many steps did I take? Oh, my goodness, did I take 999? Oh, my God, my tooth fell out. Oh, Don't work, don't work, don't work. I'm breaking the saddle. There was a time, listen, like I said, when Sunday was the toughest day of the week for me. I was worn out. I was tired. I felt horrible about myself by the end of the day. That is not, not what our day of rest is supposed to be like. Why do we gather at church? Why do we have a 10 o'clock service on Sundays? Why? To celebrate the grace and goodness and love of God. Not to leave feeling miserable. Now, if the Spirit can mix our hearts, that's a different thing. I'm not saying that. I'm not, but I'm saying church should not be, and the Sabbath should not be, your day of rest should not be this day that, that has been twisted and you're miserable. No. Listen, there's nothing wrong with obeying God. People say, well, all these rules I going to follow. Listen, his commands and laws found the scripture that, that apply to us today are born out of love for our good he doesn't need us to keep his laws it's not like if we don't follow his laws he's just well, no no he knows what's best for us it's why he gives us things to do he knows what's best like if i said don't you know drink water don't drink motor oil that's a command but that's for your good that's that's the, the the laws of god in our lives obeying that obeying that don't drink motor oil is not you know controlling you or being legalistic and annoying no it's just wisdom just wisdom God's laws show his love. We're almost done. Our obedience to God should be motivated by love. Not that I have to do all these things. No, I get to. I want to because I love him. And may church, we never live our lives, please hear this church, may we never live our lives critiquing everybody, working so hard to impress God, working so hard to be better than others, prisoners to our own performance, that is not sustainable, and that is not a life of rest. And I lived that life, church, feeling, feeling better than everybody, but knowing deep inside that I was a mess. I always wanted just to measure up. If I could just measure up, i feel good. That is not a sustainable life to live. So we see at the end of this passage here in verse 14 that, uh, the, the Jews said, hey, you can't carry your bed. The guy said, well, whoever healed me said that I should. In verse 14, Jesus finds him again in the temple, the guy that was healed. And, and he said unto him, let me make sure we're in verse 14 you can see it there. He said, behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Now, we have, we have no record in the story that he believed Jesus as in that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was who he said he was. We have no record of that. What we do see is that he's back in the temple. Jesus said, sin no more lest a worse thing come to you. What could be worse, church, than 38 years of misery? What could be worse than 38 years laying at the dirty pool of Bethesda? I'll tell you what could be worse, an eternity of condemnation apart from God in a place called hell. That is worse than 38 years of misery by the pool. And Jesus knew that, and he was trying still in grace to reach out and say, hey, you've been healed, man. You've been made whole. So sin no more isn't saying, like, go live a perfect life. He knew that. He knew that. That's impossible. But what he's saying is stop trusting in all that pool. Stop trusting in this religion that you're focused on and and all these things. You're back at the temple to this corrupt system. Trust me. Believe my words. I'm the one. And this guy just doesn't get it. Jesus says, you don't want. I'm sure I healed you physically. I'm trying to heal your soul, man. And the guy just didn't get it. So what does the guy say? Does he thank him and ask for salvation? No. He turns around and leaves again and goes and rats him out and goes to the religious leaders and says, hey, the guy that healed me, his name is Jesus. This guy is still, and listen, maybe there's more of the story that we don't see, but from what we can read, that's what, it, that's what it seems like. We see this conflict with organized religion that Jesus is kind of trying to tear down and say, it's not about that. It's not about all these laws. It's about me. I'm the son of God who is God. Jesus is tearing down this system, and he's replacing this broken system with grace. And in that, church, we can apply that in our own lives. He offers this man grace. He offers this man forgiveness. He offers this man escape from eternal condemnation. But this guy's whole concept of physical wholeness was the pool. If I could just get to the pool, if I could just get there, I'll be fine. His concept of spiritual wholeness was still to those corrupt leaders, those Pharisees in the temple. He was already back there. He walks away from the rest that Jesus offers him. So for you, church, the same question is asked. Do you want to be whole? Do you want to be whole? Take Jesus at his word. That's what the whole Gospel of John is about, the word, the power of Jesus' words. Take him at his word. Let him jolt you out of your comfort zone. Let him pull you out of your helplessness and give you new life. What rest does Jesus want to bring you into, but your system of living is keeping you from it? It's keeping you from it. That if you really believe Jesus and what he said, you would make this change. You would make that change. God asks me, do you want to be whole? And I know there were times in my life. I'm like, well, yeah, I, I do. I, I, I kind of want to be whole, but I, I, don't, I don't know if I want the responsibility of wholeness. I don't know if I want the responsibility of new life. Because sometimes in those moments when Christ is offering us rest from our insecurities, our anxiety, our addictions, whatever it may be. Yes, in our hearts, there's us like, yes, I want to be free from this stuff. But I know that if I choose freedom, if I choose Jesus, it's going to hurt. There's going to be pain. There's going to be transparency and honesty. And I don't know if I can handle that. And I've been the lame man playing the victim, looking for rest in the wrong places, not willing to make the changes. And I've been the judgmental religious Pharisee, thinking that I'm better than everybody. Thinking that I got it all together, trusting in a system To better my standing with God. If I just do this, this, and this, and God will be impressed and happy with me. Judging everybody along the way, living for performance based, except that's my, I've lived that life. And both times I missed out on the rest that He wanted to give me. I challenge you this morning, church look to Jesus, look to Him. Don't look, don't look to Coastline. We can't save you. We want to help you, We're, we're right there beside you. This guy up here, sure, I may be Pastor Donald, but I'm just like you. I'm just a sinner saved by the grace of God with my own message in my life too. We're on a journey together. We all need Jesus. No one more than the other. We need Christ. We need Jesus. He's the author. The scriptures say he's the author and the finisher of your faith. What does that mean, that Jesus is the author and finisher of my faith? It means that he has done the hard work. He has kept all the laws. He he has shed his blood for you. He is letting you, he's letting me live in grace. What a joy. He's the author and the finisher of our faith and he's the only one that can give you that rest that you and I desperately need. So if you want to be whole, church, our heads are bowed our eyes are closed. Only Jesus can give you the rest that you need. He's a faithful and good father. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know, I have been that layman. I have been that guy by the pool. I've been the one that's looking for hope and looking for rest in all the places, looking for rest. Uh, uh, in my job, looking for it in my bank accounts, in my marriage, in my relationship, in my addiction. I've been looking for that peace in my life, in all the wrong places, and I have not yet found it. And I'm so done with it. Let me tell you, Jesus offers rest. He said, Come unto me, all you that are weary, all you that are tired, and I will give you rest. In church, I'm telling you, there's something beautiful There's something beautifully painful about the grace of God sometimes that rips us out of our comfort zone, that speaks brutal truth in our ears and into our hearts, that is life-changing. We need it. We need that grace.